Welcome to the Possibility Lounge, monthly conversations with some of my favorite healers, dreamers, thinkers, and innovators about how they're dreaming up and living their most liberated lives. I'm your host, Jen Roberts. Today's guest is one of my best friends, Courtney Hall, intimacy coach at Sundara Intimacy. Courtney and I have been friends for over a decade, and we've watched each other really reimagine uh, what a life of autonomy and choice could look like for us. Um, And so in this conversation today, we touch on finding courage to be authentically you in every space that you enter, why she started Sundara Intimacy, and how her parents' unfulfilled dreams may have influenced her own life of freedom. So grab a drink and a journal, find a comfy spot, and listen in. This is the Possibility Lounge. Hey, Courtney. Hey. Hey. Hey, 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 hey. What's up? I'm so excited to have you and really glad that you are doing this, um, especially as my first guest. So um, I always start my um, conversations off by asking folks, um, what's your origin story? So how did you become the Courtney that we know um, and love today? (laughs) Well, first, let me say thank you for having me. It truly is an honor to be here first guest, um, <clears throat> especially watching you go through your journey and watching you take all the steps that you took to get here. So I really feel blessed. And like I said, honored <laughs> that you chose me to be your first uh, uh, guest on your podcast. So I appreciate that. And thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and my origin story. So what's important to my origin story is both my parents' story because later on in life, their decisions about how they chose to live their life really motivated me to make the choices that I made to live mine. Um, My mother is from Haiti and my father is from Central Florida. My mom came here when she was about nine years old um, and didn't speak English, grew up in Brooklyn, but was really determined to succeed. And for her education was the way to do that. And also joining the military. My father grew up in the segregated South and he too wanted to get out of Florida and kind of see what the world had to offer. He joined the military and that's where my parents met. And the military really was a way for them to get out of their situations and to kind of see life from a different perspective. Um, We were stationed when I was, right after I was born, my dad got stationed at Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, DC. We lived in PG County, hey PG. And um, it was the best decision my parents could have made because moving to DC in 1981, uh, moving to Prince George's County, Maryland was a boom time for middle-class black people. My mother, since joining the military, she joined on the GI Bill. She ended up going to college. She became an accountant. and she was working for the FAA. My dad was working at Andrews Air Force Base and we were living <clears throat> living the life, you know, living a really nice life in suburban Prince George's County, living in this kind of like black utopia bubble where there are black people doing well all around you. And you do grow up in the, with this sense of reality, like you can do anything because your doctor is black. And, you know, your hairdresser is Black. You have Black teachers at your school. So you really grow up in this environment where you feel encouraged and valued and you can do all of these things. Um, So with the backdrop of that life, 
I go to private school. Um, and I was the kind of person, the kind of kid that I, I needed to find my way, right? And my mother wanted to give me the kind of life where I got to find my way. <laughs> Finding my way involved going to like three or four different elementary and junior high schools. I went to three different high schools. I went to two colleges. And it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't until I got to college at Howard University, because the first college I went to was North Carolina A&T, Aggie Pride. Um, and then I transferred because once I got to a and I was like, oh my God, I'm in Greensboro and I'm a city girl and I want to go home. I'm a top <laughs> This is not for me. And then I go to Howard and really come into my own um, at Howard. But when I got to Howard, I said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to graduate. And then I decided to go to graduate school. So while I was at Howard, I was studying journalism. I wanted to be like Oprah, but young and cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I wanted. I wanted to be on TV, child. I want to have my own show. I wanted it to be a whole thing. And then I started doing like internships and, you know, interning with like Giorgio Armani in New York. And then I had a friend that worked at Dev Jam. I would do stuff. Like there were all these things. And I just realized like there are children starving in Africa. There are <laughs> things going on in the world. Everywhere. Like, I, was, I was so intense in my 20s, right? Like just intense. I guess because that's the generation. That's that what we were, from, right? Yeah, that's right. what they like, taught us to be. Exactly. I think having parents that were baby boomers, everything was very serious. And like you go to school and you get the house and the job and the family, and that mm -hmm. was the trajectory that we were to be on. But no one told me that you were only going to be 21 when you finished school and like you'd still feel young. So at that time, I, you know, do all these internships. I'm in my junior year of college and I'm like, oh no, I'm not ready to go out there yet. <laughs> like mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not ready to be a reporter in like <laughs> Newport News, Virginia, <laughs> making forty thousand dollars with my little degree. Child, I was not, I was not there. And at the same time, I started doing volunteer work with this organization called Kiwanis. And in college it's called Circle K. And in high school, it's Key Club, where you do all this like volunteer work and helping. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed volunteering. I really enjoyed like being a mentor and doing after school programs with kids. It really spoke to me. And this was coming up around the time where I had to decide what I was going to do. And at Howard, if you got at least a 2.5 GPA, you could go to the grad program without having to take a GRE or anything. Thank you, Jesus, with my 2.7. With my 2.7. I said, oh. We staying at Howard. We are staying, honey. We're going to buy some more time, child. And we are going to figure out what this thing called life is going to look like. So I said, well, I don't want to go for journalism. I want to do something where I'm going to have a profession at the end. So I said, well, I could be like a professional helper. What's that? And one of my friends was like, oh, you could be a social worker. Because at first I was thinking about being a guidance counselor. And then some other people told me, don't pigeonhole yourself. You know, you should do the social work. You can do a lot of things with that. Let me tell you what you can't be with social worker, a guidance counselor. You can't do that. They didn't think. <laughs> They'll be telling you about the bad advice people give you right. when you try to figure your life out. You can do all these things. None of those people that told me that were social workers. So that just goes to you. That's lesson number one. Don't take advice from people who don't have what you're trying to get or been where you're trying to go because this is the kind of stuff they tell you. So after my first semester of grad school, I wanted to quit. I said, oh no, this is not for me. I don't want to do this. This is not a professional helper. I don't want to do this. And then 
I had to talk to some of my family members that had gone to grad school and things of that nature. Because again, all I had been in school, like I had been in school my whole life and the only thing I'd ever done was be a student. I had been in school since I was five years old. Here I am 22 and I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing? I, I'm tired of being in school. My friends got Gucci purses, they taking trips. And you know what my mother told me? They have bad credit, Courtney. <laughs> said the accountant. <laughs> they have bad credit, Courtney. They make the same little $45,000 that you'd be making. They make that too, honey. And if they got these Gucci bags and they doing all this, where do you think the money is coming from? The sky? And I just, you know, having those kinds of voices in your ear to keep you on the track were very necessary. So graduate undergrad, I got my, got my master's degree in social work. And I ended up working at the same place I was doing my internship, which was uh, DC Superior Court. I was an intern for a supervised visitation program that they had there for people involved in family court and involved in domestic violence uh, cases. And I was an intern there and I ended up becoming the program manager for that program right when I graduated. So here I am 24 years old running this program I have people who work for me that are two and three times my age. And it was this whole thing where I'm 24 years old running this program. And I'm like the youngest person that's ever done this. I'm going to meetings. I'm clearly the youngest person in the room, right? And in college, they don't prepare you for that part. You know, you don't get prepared. They don't teach you how to write a memo. <laughs> you know, yeah. they, don't, they don't teach you about how to work your personality into what you do. And I remember for many years being in that environment, trying to figure out how I fit in. Because in DC, most of the people work for the government. My mom worked for the FAA. I grew up watching my mom putting on her Bill Blast suits and, you know, with the mile high shoulder pads and a fiery fuchsia fashion fair lipstick with her hair all feathered <laughs> and she's going to work with a coach brookie. Like I watched that and you aspire to do those things because this is what the women in your life do. If, if the women in my life weren't career military, like my aunt B or my aunt G, you know, I have a very distinct memory of my godmother wearing her Air Force Blues and her sky high black patent leather stilettos. And you can <laughs> tell Irma Jean Green nothing. She was a vision in that uniform. So saying that to say, just seeing these people around me exude this level of professionalism in this type of environment, and that's what it looked like. That's what I thought I wanted. I looked mm -hmm. up to these women. So when I finally got into it, I did no one told me that your, who you are as a person, that's a constant. And you can try to put yourself in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But if that situation is not authentic to you, it's you're not, not going to work. It's not working and you're not going to fool anyone. And that's what happened to me. It took me about five years before I realized it. So from like the time I was 24 to the time that I was like 29, 30, I'm on autopilot at work. Like, and in my mind, Jen, in my mind, I just thought that it was like a pause. Like I fell into this job because I was interning. It didn't feel authentic to me, but I'm making money. 
it afforded me the ability to buy a condo because, you know, in these Caribbean households, honey, you go to school, you buy a house. So I graduated from my master's program in May and bought that condo in July. <laughs> had, had the condo, had the job two months after school. So now, again, mm -hmm. something nobody else told you, right? So I'm working, doing my thing. Two, three years go by, girl, I look up and I'm like, holy shit, this is it. Yeah. That quarter, quarter life crisis. Girl, I said, so is this what life is about to be? I just get up, go to work? Because by this time, by the time I had the quarter life crisis, I had been working with domestic violence victims now for like three years. I have been working with supervised visitation. I was teaching parenting classes to um, offenders coming home in these halfway houses. So I'm dealing with people at all these different levels. And it's at this time that I decided like, oh, I don't want to have children. Mm -hmm. So I decided I don't want to have children because now I'm looking at parenting and having children very differently than the two parent idealistic environment that I grew up in, right? Like this man could leave barefoot, leave your barefoot <laughs> down on that child with this baby, honey. And it's just you and the baby. Okay. <laughs> the hard way. So I just started to rethink things. And then I thought about who I was as a person and stripped away all of the messages. And I thought, do I want to be a mother? Or is that just something that you just say all the time? And as I started looking more around and thinking about my life and how I saw my life, I never saw my life with a kid in it. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, now that that's settled, I need to figure out what my life is going to look like. And then when mm -hmm. this quarter life crisis things happens, <clears throat> I start thinking about how I'm not going to have the distraction of a child because I knew I didn't want to have children. I started to date differently. Now I'm not mm -hmm. dating for the father of my child. I'm dating for a companion for myself. So now I'm not even dating the same way. Yeah. The way that I think about working and making money is very different because the only person I'm supporting is me. And whatever I choose my lifestyle to be is what I deem it to be okay. So it doesn't have to be a lot of things for me to be happy. So you start thinking about all of these things and it really put me in a space where I didn't have anyone else to relate to because also I didn't know anybody else who wanted the life that I want. Yeah. All of my friends in my peer group were either having children, wanted to have children, wanted to be married. And when I was growing up, all of my mom's friends were married. They all had children. I mm -hmm. never saw a single woman by choice with no children living the life of her choosing yeah I didn't have an example so it was very scary for me between like 28 and 33 to figure out like okay what does this mean because also you hear people talk about things like you don't want to have children it's selfish and then my mother would say it's selfish when you have them and you don't treat them right so you know, the idea of not wanting to have a family just left more time for myself. And it put a lot of pressure on myself because now it's like, you don't have any reason to not live or at least strive to live for your full potential, right? So have the core life crisis girl in the late twenties, keep going with life at work, child. They, my boss had asked me, who was a black woman? She had asked me, 
two times to go to management training, to this management training program. And I had told her I was not interested. I remember, I remember that. And, and I, I was not want to do this management training. I do not. I want to do this. I'm not interested. I'm not impressed by anyone I see who has done this management training. I know this is all part of the game on how you get hired in the government. And there was a certain level of commitment that I knew that I'd be making if I did this. So finally, she asked me. I had been there for nine years at this point. Time goes by so fast. You don't even realize it. And when she asked me that third time, I was like, yo, you got to do this. You're here. It's almost 10 years you've been here. I started going through management training, acting a whole fool. <laughs> acting a whole fool. Because you, I mean, your spirit already knew it was time to leave that place. It, it was. And you know what? I think for a lot of us, we always want to have a conversation. We always want to bring something to the table or we want to let somebody know what's on our mind or what's going on. But to your point, and like my hairdresser told me, child, she is a wealth of jewels. You know, your actions have already told everybody before you tell anybody. Mm-hmm. You've already, and my mentor at work said the same thing. He said, you know, Courtney, I watch you in these meetings and you are bursting at the seams. You come in here with your polka dot, super small <laughs> floral dress on, and you don't even look like you belong here. Okay. You got your blonde hair and it's pink over here. Like what? You know, get out of here. And he told me, he said, this place is going to stifle you. You don't belong here. And everybody can tell. And it's interesting because (laughs) at the end of management training, much to the chagrin of the uh, leadership, my group won. (laughs) My group's project won. And I wrote the paper for it. And when I tell you I had to fight to prove to these people that just because my attitude was bad didn't mean my work was. Um... It was a fight to the death. And like I said, much to the chagrin of everyone, my team won and I got the bonus money. And when we took the management training photo, (laughs) I'm wearing a Canadian tuxedo. That's right, denim on denim. (laughs) And everyone else is wearing a suit. And I did not know that we were supposed to be wearing suits. It was casual Friday and I was casual. Well, the photographer, he goes, and I my, my blonde curl. He goes, you sit in the front. Oh. In the management training photo for my class, I am front and center in the middle <laughs> with my denim on denim outfit. Because you can see the whole thing. Flanked by everyone wearing professional clothes. <laughs> it's such a like. It is such a pre, like a, a premonition of what was to yeah. come, like a, a, a like almost a, a reminder to you forever. You do not fit in these conventional spaces and you should stop trying to. You know, and it's funny, I told my mother, so when the picture came out, I'm looking at it. And this is why I said at the beginning, my, my parents' story is just as important as mine. My mother was the only Black woman in her management class at the FAA. And in her picture, everybody is wearing blue, black, or tan. And even though the picture is black and white, I know the dress she's wearing because my eyes would light up every time she wore it. She's wearing a magenta dress (laughs) with her hair pulled back, giving a thousand watt smile. And she's the only one smiling in the picture. And guess where my girl is? Front Front and center. center. Mm -hmm. so 
saying all that to say, you know, I feel like every step of this journey, my mother's spirit has been with me because there were decisions that she made based on the life she wanted, but there were so many things that she didn't get a chance to do. And she's always been special, but been special in these very specific places. So when we have this management training journey and that comes to a close, at the same time that's coming to a close, a friend of mine invited me to go to the Black American Black Film Festival in New York. And I went with him and I went to a workshop that Robert Townsend was giving. It was a pitching workshop about pitching your ideas. And you're going to hear a thousand no's before you hear one yes. And that's what happened to me. And as I'm in this room and I'm looking at all these black creatives around me and I'm looking at what they look like and how they're speaking and, the, and I'm making it my business to be present in the moment. I felt like this, these are the spaces I need to be in and not necessarily spaces that have to do with Hollywood or anything like that, but spaces where things are being created and people are being their best creative selves. And the little things don't matter. The pretentious things don't matter. Just, <clears throat> it's just the art. That's what matters. Mm -hmm. um, and I came back from that experience saying, I'm done. I had a girlfriend who lived in LA and for years she had been saying, you should come, you should come. By this time, I'm 33. By this time, I'm 33. So at this time, it has been about 10 years since I'm out of grad school, working my job. I go to this American Black Film Festival. I just finished management training. And I decide, you know what? I don't have any kids. I'm not married and that's not the life that I want. And I'm bored. Girl, I wish it was something more profound sometimes. But, but sometimes I, that's all it takes. <laughs> and I think that I think for us as Black women, when we hear, at least for me, when I hear other people's stories, it's usually mm -hmm. like this cataclysmic thing that has happened to them, that has mm -hmm. catapulted them to make this change. They're waiting for the sky to fall out. Girl, it was just this nagging feeling of boredom and mediocrity. For mm -hmm. me, it mm -hmm. felt very mediocre to get up and go to work at the court for the next 30 years of my life. And that's my experience. And the only thing I did outside of get up and go to work was go to brunch with my friends, mm -hmm. going on a vacation. When you start doing that shit at 22, 23, by the time you're in your 30s, it's, it's old. It's old, yeah. It is. I didn't have to, it wasn't like, like my mom had me when she was 26. All of her friends had kids. Their life was very different. I had never seen somebody 35 living the life that I was living for mm -hmm. that long without a change. And for me personally, that was something that I had to deal with mm -hmm. because one of my biggest challenges in my adulthood, especially in my early thirties, was the fact that I looked exactly the same as I did in my twenties. I was wearing the same clothes. I had the same job. And a lot of the outward things that happen to people that mature you, like having a baby and getting married and getting a new job over here or moving somewhere else, None of those things were happening to me. So mm -hmm. here I am at like 33, living the same way I was living at 24. Yeah. And, you know, my family is still kind of treating me the same way because again, there I don't have the outward examples of maturity. Yeah, you bought a house, blah, blah, blah. What else were you going to do? Right. But outside of that, I didn't have that. So for me, it was just, Courtney, you are 33. Do you want this to be it? Or do you want to go out and just do something different. And out of, like I said, out of sheer boredom, hearing my mentor, Daryl at work, talking about some 
my clothes. I'm bursting at the seams. I'm doing all these things, which was true. <laughs> because again, I was trying to be creative and artistic right. any way that I could be. So the only thing I could do was my clothes. I looked cute all the time. <laughs> yes, you did. I, yeah, I definitely looked like where is she going? <laughs> the, the, the punky Brewster Caribbean To do better queen. things. To do right. better things. That's I'm about I'm to- <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was just bored and I wanted to do something else. And my girlfriend from undergrad was an executive at Warner Brothers at the time. And she was saying, you know, come out here. I can get you a job, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I talked to my parents because I'm very close to them. And they were so supportive. I remember when I told them I had gone out to LA for a producer's uh, workshop. And while I was out there, I decided this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to come to LA, see if I can get into entertainment behind the scenes, maybe, or whatever. But I wanted to be a creative. I didn't want to do this anymore. I called my parents. And they were so supportive. I started to cry right there at the conference. They were like, we don't want you to feel like you didn't get a chance to do the things that you want to do because we stood in your way. Go out there. We support you. Blah, 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 blah. Now, during this time as well, my parents were getting a divorce after 38 years of marriage. So I also think that part of that was them trying to, because your parents, at least mine, never stopped seeing you as their child. So I think a certain part of their motivations for me to go and be so supportive was this was going to be a hard time for all of us. And if this is what she wants to do, let her do it Mm -hmm. and let's support her. So I moved out here, packed up my car, gave DC the middle finger. (laughs) My friends, of course, all my friends were lovely. They threw going away parties, we had a good time, but I was ready to get this thing started, get my new life started. And it really just came from a place of, I knew that the life I was living was not the authentic life to me. And if nothing else, I was going to have an adventure. Mm -hmm. And baby girl, when I tell you, when I went to LA, adventure I had, (laughs) baby. I feel like that's a good segue, like to the next question I have for you. Tell me more about Sundara intimacy and how you got to starting Sundara and like what what you hope people get out of work they do with you or work they do in that area of intimacy well what motivated me to start Sundara was the idea that sex for a lot of women mainly black women um sex happens to us um through casual conversations that I'd had, professional conversations um, <clears throat> that I had had over the years, you know, Black women that I would encounter would talk about sex very passively. Um, and that always sat with me because it was me too. Like it was, I let it happen to me. I mean, there would be people that I would want to sleep with, but when it came down to the act, I was more of a willing participant Mm -hmm. and less of a partner. Um, So when I got to LA, um, you know, I thought I was going to be working in entertainment, but then I saw the lifestyle that my girlfriend was living and where she'd have to go to all these functions and she had to look a certain way. And it was very reminiscent of why I didn't go into entertainment in the first place. And it reminded me of that. So while I was in that space for about the first few weeks, 
I had thought about being a therapist before I went out there. When I was about to leave my job, I was thinking, what can I do to make money in the meantime? Because I also wanted to write. Um, and I said, well, you know what? I have this master's in social work. <clears throat> I never wanted to be a therapist before because I didn't want to listen to people's problems all day. But after 10 years of being a social worker in these different capacities, working for the court and everything, even though I was not a clinician at the time, I was still listening to people's problems all day long. So I said, well, there's, at that point, I had realized that one of my gifts was I was very disarming to people. I'm the kind of person that if I'm on an airplane, people start telling me all their most intimate secrets. I don't know if it's the curly hair and freckles. I don't know. <laughs> but <clears throat> I've always had that experience. So it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized that that was a gift. Saying that to say, when I saw my girlfriend coming home and having all these negative experiences about her relationships regarding not knowing if people wanted to be friends with her for her or because she was in entertainment, the way that she had to show up in certain environments inauthentically and all of that, I knew that wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so if I'm not going to do that, what can I do? I'll be a therapist. And what is something that I could talk about all day long and not get tired of? Sex. <laughs> Become a sex therapist. So I decided that's what I was going to do. So right before I moved to LA, I found this uh, series of classes at the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. And I signed up for the first uh, workshop set of classes that was like six weeks. And I was the only black person. And mm. it looked like I was the youngest person because, you know, black don't crack. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure they didn't think when they found out at the time that I was 35, they were like, oh, we thought you were like 28. It's like, I'm sure you did. Um, but I was the only black person. Um, and as I was going through these classes, there was no cultural competency involved in any of the techniques, any of the things that they were talking about. They didn't make, there was no space for culture to show up in a way that may influence people's choices when it comes to their sexuality or how they treat sex addiction or love addiction. And I started to notice those things. Um, the information was very valuable, but I also noticed that I wanted to work with my own community because we had a very unique issues that we should be dealing with and working on. And <clears throat> after taking these classes and really thinking to myself, the question that came to me that was the catapult to everything was, who teaches you how to have sex? And that's a very basic question, but that yeah. is the, that fundamental question was the springboard for, for this business because no one teaches you how to have sex. You watch pornography, movies, bad advice and information from your little crackhead friend. <laughs> you don't, your mom doesn't sit you down and say, sweetheart, when he is on top of you, you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z, or if it doesn't feel good, you need to tap him and tell him to stop. Like no one's telling you any of these things. So. You depend, as a heterosexual woman, you depend, a lot of us depend very heavily on the man's experience and him leading the experience. And as we all know, if we've been having sex for a while, we all know that allowing them to lead the experience most of the time means their pleasure is going to be at the forefront and not yours. You have mm -hmm. some men who are givers and pleasers and that's all great. But when you don't know how to navigate an experience for yourself, 
-hmm. then you're just going to be passively receiving whatever it is they're giving you. And I knew that that was an issue. So I said, you know what? I want to start a business where it's not sex focused, it's intimacy focused. Because if we can slow down the sexual experience for Mm -hmm. all parties involved, we can really focus on what it is that we're doing here. And what we're doing here is trying to create, foster, maintain bond and connection. Sex is, is the outcome of this intimate bond and connection that we're creating. Because sex, you know, is an, is an experience that depending on the person's body can be long or short. Yeah. But the bond doesn't have a physical component to it to where it's a time. Your bond can be infinite forever. So that's what really led me to starting Sundara, really thinking about all these conversations I've had, becoming an older woman myself. By the time I started this business, I was like 35. Mm -hmm. So, you know, starting this business at 35 and my sexual experiences up until that point have been very varied. Child, I didn't start living my best sexual self until I moved to LA. Yeah. Because, you know, you're when in you this, got freer in your whole life in general, yeah. Now, when I could be and this, this sums it up perfectly. I got to see who I am when no one was looking. Mm. And I think that's so important because you know me, yeah. the person who I am now, I'm still the same person, but I'm like a completely different person at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I am truly my most authentic self at this point in my life, but I don't think, well, not even, I don't think I can't say for sure because we don't know for sure because I did it, but I really believe had I not moved. Yeah. I really wouldn't be the person that I am now, as far as like happy and like carefree and doing what, what I you want to do. Yes. Absolutely. I'm not afraid to take risks. You are a big part of that as well, because, you know, as I was saying before, I had never grown up seeing people or a single person or anything like that, but that I've also never seen anyone being an entrepreneur either. Like I had family members that had their own businesses, but they were like restaurants or they were bands, you know, Caribbean people love the entertainment business. So I had uncles and things that (laughs) had those kinds of businesses or whatever, but I never saw someone like quit their job to start their business. I never saw anyone like create their own niche of something and watching you do that really made it possible for me to even think about certain things that I would have never thought about before because I didn't have an example. It's like that thing. You don't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know. Exactly. And watching you do it, it just really showed me like, yeah, girl, just go ahead. I truly believe even in having this conversation, it becomes very clear to me, you know, your gift and the gift that you are given, it is a ministry. And I'd make money off of this gift in other ways. So, you know, Sundari uh, Sundari Intimacy is my intimacy coaching. I love it. Working with people, that is my passion. I adore it. My other passion also is being a professor and an academic advisor. And that gets to be my ministry, getting to help people live authentically in another aspect of their lives. Um, And saying, just bringing that full circle to say, 
being able to live authentically in a way that I have a career that funds my life, but I'm authentic in it every single day. And then I have a ministry that funds my spirit and can fund my life as well, that I can be my most authentic self in every day. So at this place in my life, at in the year, of the, in my 40th or 41st year beginning, because I just turned 40, I am really at a place where as a woman, as a grown up, because I've always been happy. We have our moments of sadness, right? But by and large, I've had a very blessed life. I have beautiful friends, a beautiful family. I've always been happy. But at this point, at this moment, I have everything I want. And I'm blissfully, euphorically happy mm-hmm. with all of the choices that and I how many? And how many of those choices are the ones you thought you wanted at 21? None of them. Exactly. Oh my gosh, isn't that none crazy, right? Like none absolutely of them. none of them. I didn't even think I could be happy in this way, living this type of life at 21, because I didn't know this kind of life existed. You know, you I didn't even know. First of all, can we just pause for a second and think about how unrealistic we thought life was at 21? Like to think about, first of all, at 21, we thought 40 was old. And like we meet someone who was 40 and be like, oh my God, (laughs) they were born in like the 70s. (laughs) Some stupid stupidity, you know what I'm saying? And just have this really weird idea of what life was going to be. And then you get depressed when it's not that way. And if you're lucky, and this is where the blessing comes in. If you are lucky and you are blessed, you will rebound from that or you will accept that early on and start making decisions that honor yourself. Because so many times we don't, some of us never rise from the depression or the disappointment of it's not what I thought it was going to be at all. Yeah. What I hope people get from this, not this podcast specifically, but um, you know, this episode with us, but also just the podcast in general is the ability to have what you said you didn't have, which is examples of multiple free ways to live, right? So like when I see this person did this way and they didn't quit their job, they had this other thing on the side that allows them to live this, you know, passionate life and their job is aligned and whatever, or this other person totally has their full blown livelihood (laughs) in their passion, right? Like there's space for all of it. And like, the more we start figuring out what that is and tapping into the things that bring us joy and light us up and bring us pleasure, like we'll be more likely to get to the point that you were like, like, you know what? I'm done. I'm quitting this thing that feels boring and vanilla and beige. And I'm going to where there's brightness and color and life and joy, right? Um, Yeah. And I think this is a good thing to say to your listeners. You have to curate the life that you want. We not having energy in our space that doesn't honor us in a respectful way. We're not saying that doesn't tell us when we're wrong or correct us. We're saying honor us. And when you honor the people you love, you tell them when they're wrong and you love on them when they need it. And if you have that, then honey, 
you can go out into the world, look just like your daughter. I don't care if no one likes my outfit. My mom said I was cute and my dad said I was smart. So here that's I am. All right. Here <laughs> I, that's it. All you here need I is am. your cheering section. Yeah. So. And I think that that, I think that's a great takeaway um, before we segue into our last question. Um, because I, I, I do think that's one of the most important things in terms of like even what I've learned in this last year being my pleasure year and like trying to experience not just sexual pleasure, but things out pleasure outside of that. Like, what do I actually really like? Who do I actually want to be? What, you know, what's the thing I'm going to put on and walk out and be like, I don't care if y'all don't like it. Cause this is who I am. Right. Like what are those things and what, and what makes, what is the feeling of that type of pleasure feel like to me so that I can go seek it out at other places and other spaces or whatever. And yeah. I think that reminder of, you know, little baby steps of finding ways to show up as authentically you in places that have often seemed tough for you, like practicing that um, Mm -hmm. is an important thing. We talk about practice a lot in this lab, about rest being a practice, about pleasure being a practice, about all these things being things you have to practice doing. And I think being authentically yourself so that you can show up in intimate spaces as who you are and ask for what you want is also a practice. And so like, you know, doing little things like to, you know, like taking off, you know, some of these defenses that you have and saying, I'm gonna make this one step this week to like show up fully as myself in this place. I usually don't, you know, if it feels safe to do so, you know, like, and then using that as an opportunity to like force yourself to feel that more often and like have your cheering section that's there with you saying like, yep, I saw you do that. Like who else can, where else can we do that? You can, you know, where else can you show up like that? Um, how else can you practice that? And I think, um, you know, that those, all those little practices together, I think really is what makes the bigger movement and allows you to then be able to show up in a more intimate space with a partner or something and say, I like it when you do this, I prefer it if you do that, or like, you know, having actual conversations about sex versus just like, like you said, having it done to you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously like, I'm going to bring you back to the show when we come back next time. Um, I definitely want to talk more specifically about then how this shows up in sexually intimate relationships, but I know like to kick off, to kick off the year, I felt like, you know, just having people think about, you know, who they really authentically are and hearing your story about like letting go of, you know, the conventions that you maybe thought were for you and discovering and tinkering around to find the dream, like that made sense for you, like, um, is what I hope people take away from this conversation. Um, yeah. And then way to get there. Yeah. Like there's a ton of ways to get there. And like you said, you didn't have examples of that, but I hope that what folks are starting to see now are people who, who are those examples who are saying like, here are all the different ways that we've done it. And you still could choose something that ain't nothing like (laughs) right? Like, and we would be here cheering you on. Like, that's definitely what the lab, I hope the lab is for people. Like, we cheering you on, girl. Like, you can- Go on, girl. Go on, girl. Go on, girl. So I will close this out with our last question. And this is a question I always ask my guests because, you know, I don't think that the things that we do, we're doing just for us. Like, we're doing it for the collective us um, and for the future of us. And so um, what do you hope your descendants will say about you? 
And I know you're like, I'm not having kids, so it's not descendants. I don't think so. It's not descendants maybe in the traditional way, but you know, you got girls, nieces and things like that, you know? So what do you want your descendants to say about And mentees, yeah. I mean, I want them... (laughs) Honestly, it's not this super deep thing. And I think Mm -hmm. that, again, that's authentic to me. Um, I want them to say, my auntie Courtney lived as a woman, especially as a black woman within the context of the time and space that we are in at this moment to be able, and I don't want to cry because it, it's hard, but to be able to just live. You understand my auntie Courtney, you know, she had sex with who she wanted to have sex with. She did the jobs that she wanted to do. She traveled where she wanted to travel. When everyone told her her dress was ugly, she liked it and she stood in that space. She loved me. She defended me. She showed me how to be the most authentic woman that I could be. And bringing it full circle to, I talked about my parents in the beginning of this, and I will close with my parents. I feel like the main reason why my parents have always been so successful, I mean, supportive of me Mm -hmm. is because they saw aspects of themselves that they couldn't be in Mm. they saw the best parts of themselves in me and really wanted to nurture that when I talked about wanting to do sex therapy and go across the country to live somewhere else and to have a different life experience my mom told me to do all the things you know, the only thing they said was have a retirement because they're still practical. Right, <laughs> right. You know, get some health care because we don't want you to break your leg. You can't go anywhere. But they wanted me to live life. My mother and father never pressured me to have children. We talked about why I wasn't going to have any. So it wasn't like I'm the only Black person who didn't have the pressure. No, we had a full conversation about what it is to be a parent why I don't want to have children, their separate experiences with family Mm -hmm. and their own. And both of them both said the same thing. Have children because you want them. If you don't want them, don't have them. And we don't care either way. If us being grandparents, that ain't, we're fine. If that (laughs) don't have them for us, we're okay. So just saying that to say, I got to be the manifestation of a lot of their hopes and dreams. For my dad, it's me living autonomously. As a black man, I don't think my father ever saw a life where he could be a single black man with no children. I don't think he felt like he could have that kind of autonomy. And I think my mother, again, getting married at 21 years old, coming from a certain lifestyle, a different country, all these things, the level of freedom, me and her talk about what would she would have, what would she been like? What would she would have been like, I guess, I don't even know how to say it right, John, had she not got married? Because my mom Mm -hmm. is brilliant. Yeah. And I think a large part of a lot of our mothers Mm -hmm. got stifled when they became wives and mothers. So I think that a large part of their support for me is their child is actually the manifestation of probably who they thought they wanted to be or who they really Mm -hmm. were. I'm an only child. I was a might as well baby. So it wasn't like... And my parents love me and all this other stuff. So it's nothing like that. But just that for the way my life turned out and how we all have bits of our ancestors flowing through us and those manifestations do come out. Mm -hmm. I really do think that my life of autonomy, my life of choice, my life of um, alternative living in comparison to my peer group, like all of that really 
are relics of lives that they wanted to live. Yeah. So yeah. I lived and that's what I want my descendants to know that I, I did all the things. I didn't do all the drugs because <laughs> that can kill you. I did my share. <laughs> I did my share. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't leave this earth wondering what if or why didn't I? Yeah. So that's what I want for all those girls. And that quote that you had, that quote about your oh, responsibility. Shenge, yeah, yeah, that really sp- spoke to my spirit. So I want to leave that for my descendants too. I'm not going to butcher the quote, but you know. Yeah, I mean, that quote really um, about not leaving a generation of girls um, thinking that anyone can take care of their emotional health other than themselves. Like that, Ooh. that quote, like was the reason that, that was the reason this lab got started. Like that was the quote I saw in my phone that made me say, oh yeah, this is what you need to do. And you're going to name it Color Girls Lab because that's Intazaki's thing, you know? Like, so that's really, that quote is what did it. I was like, oh yeah, that is what I want. I want people to come into a space and leave out of here, never thinking that they can't be anything they want to be and that they have all of the support to, from this group of people, but also in themselves to like live the most authentic, free and liberated life they could possibly live, right? So that there are examples for other folks that can say like, I have seen what it looks like to live a life of freedom and I'm choosing to do something similar. And I think that's gonna be the legacy that, you know, I'm thankful that I have so many friends around me that are doing that in their own way because I think that's the legacy we're gonna leave for folks. like. You know, yeah, we came here and we did all the things. We did all the things. All of them. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Oh my God, I had such a wonderful time. I just, I'm so excited for all the things that are happening for you and for the lab and for all the women who have chosen to make this a part of their lives. Um, I think it's really special and it's very powerful and those women who have chosen to make this a part of their lives are getting to get a glimpse or experience something that I've been so blessed to experience for the past, geez, 12, almost 15 years, years, almost yeah. 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the church folks say it, the Dalai Lama say it, all the spiritual people say it, love changes things. Yeah, it does. And you have people that love you and show up for you. You can do anything. <laughs>